This is Our American Stories, and we love music here on the show, and we love history. And that's why this is our favorite segment, and Jesse brings us this week in music history. Well, it's Saturday night, and I just got paid. I fool about money, don't try to save. My heart says go, go, have a time. Saturday night, baby, and I feel if I don't want to ride. This week in music history, 1960, Elvis Presley won his first gold record for his second studio album titled Elvis. It spent four weeks at number one on the Billboard Top Pop Albums chart, making Presley the first recording artist to have both albums go straight to number one the same year. And in 1964, the Beatles made their live concert debut in the U.S. at the Washington Coliseum. Over 350 police surrounded the stage to keep the 8,000-plus screaming fans in control. One officer reportedly found the noise so unbearable that he stuck a bullet in each ear to plug the noise. The Beatles had to stop three times and turn Ringo's drum kit around and reposition their microphones so they faced a different part of the audience. Fast forward to 1989 this week in music history, and Paula Abdul started a three-week run at number one on the U.S. singles chart with Straight Up, the first of three number ones in 1989, a number three hit in the U.K. The demo version was so bad that Paula's mom was crying laughing <laughs> and threw it in the garbage. The music label didn't think the song was any good either. But Paula made a deal with them that she would record two songs that they wanted, which she didn't like, if they would let her do straight up. The song was recorded at a cost of $3,000, and within 10 days it had sold a million copies. The song was originally recorded in a bathroom, and in the master recording, you can hear someone in the next apartment over yelling, Shut up! Shut up! Shut up! Shut up! And in 1972, Led Zeppelin scored their third U.S. Top 20 single with Black Dog, Misty Mountain Hop. Hey, hey, mama said the way you move gonna make you sweat, gonna make you groove. The song's title is a reference to a nameless black Labrador retriever that wandered around the sound studios during recording. And born this week in music history, Sheryl Crow, U.S. singer-songwriter who had the 1994 U.S. number two and U.K. number four single with All I Want to Do. From her 1993 album Tuesday Night Music Club, the album won Crow three Grammy Awards in 1995, Record of the Year, Best New Artist, and Best Female Vocal Performance. My early beginnings, I moved to L.A. and I got some session work. I had a tape of some songs and some demos, and I started getting hired to do some session work. And after being turned down by every record label, having like played the piano and played the guitar and done gigs, the last-ditch effort was all I want to do. And then that became like a huge hit. And it, that was not even a song to me that, I mean, that was one that I sort of thought we should have left off the album, and then it became like the big hit. So, you know, you never know. Have some fun until the sun comes up over Santa Monica Boulevard. 
1972, Al Green went to number one on the U.S. singles chart with Let's Stay Together, his only U.S. chart topper. And in 1939, born this week in music history, Ray Manzarek, the great keyboardist for The Doors, who had the 1967 U.S. number one single, Light My Fire, and the 1971 single, Writers on the Storm, both tracks of which we break down in their entirety at OurAmericanNetwork.org. Manzarek passed away in 2013 after a long battle with cancer. He formed The Doors with lead singer Jim Morrison in 1965 after a chance meeting in Venice Beach, Los Angeles. And in 1961, this week in music history, Frank Sinatra launched his own record label, Reprise Records, in order to allow more artistic freedom for his own recordings. Hence, he garnered the nickname, The Chairman of the Board. One of the label's founding principles under Sinatra's leadership was that each artist would have full creative freedom and at some point complete ownership of their work. Reprise later became home to many acts such as Neil Young, Jimi Hendrix, Joni Mitchell, Randy Newman, and the Beach Boys. Can't take that away from me. And in 1966, Nancy Sinatra was number one on the UK singles chart with These Boots Are Made For Walking. You keep saying you got something for me. Something you call love, but confess. You've been a messin' where you shouldn't have been a messin' And now someone else is getting all your best These boots are made for walking And that's just what they'll do And in 1992, the film Wayne's World, which featured appearances from Meatloaf and Alice Cooper, premiered in the U.S. The use of Queen's Bohemian Rhapsody in the film propelled the song to number two on the U.S. singles charts nearly 20 years after its first release. And that is This Week in Music History. For Our American Stories, I'm Jesse Edwards.
Leslie Habib, and this is Our American Stories. And our own Alex Cortez loves to regularly bring us great stories about human freedom and what can happen when it's unleashed in a free economy. And occasionally, what happens when governments get in the way. And today's story is about human freedom and potential in a place where you might least expect it. Here's Alex. You're about to hear the voices of five young siblings from Syria. My mom was tall and thin. Her face was tall. She loved us and used to spoil us a lot and stuff. All of my mom's food was delicious. They brought her body to us after she was shot by the Air Force from the airplanes. We started crying over her. We were crazy about her. My dad died because he inhaled the gas of a bombing at the beginning of the revolution. He killed them. The he is Bashar al-Assad, the Syrian dictator who has murdered his own country's civilians, innocent civilians, in its civil war. Like three million other Syrians, these five young children fled their own country to fight for their survival. Another eight million have been internally displaced to a different part of their country. Together, that's almost half of Syria's population who has been forced out of their hometowns. And they're the lucky ones. 300,000 will never see their hometowns again, losing their lives in the conflict. Neighboring country Jordan hosts over 600,000 of the refugees. Almost one-tenth of their native population. These five children you heard from are among the 430,000 refugees that have passed through just one of Jordan's refugee camps, called Zatari, just six miles from Syria's southern border. At one point, it was the largest refugee camp in the world, and it's Jordan's fourth largest city, a refugee camp, the fourth largest city. 85,000 refugees live there today. But no one wanted to take in these five children because there's five of them until one woman heard about them and her husband said to bring them to their makeshift home in the refugee camp. Can you believe that? Adopting when you're in a refugee camp. Here she is speaking to Vice. The small children are a bit more accepting of the situation. Hanin, the eldest, she's still suffering from this problem. She saw her mother when she was shot. She can't forget that scene. Sometimes at any time at night when you come in, you'll find her awake. She doesn't sleep. She has non-stop anxiety, nervousness. Like many refugee camps of the past and present, they're filled with gut-wrenching stories like this. But unlike all others, at Zatari, there's something else going on too. Like a lot of something else. Like a guy who blings up bicycles in a refugee camp. 
a pizza shop in a refugee camp. And my favorite one of all, a bridal store in a refugee camp. Women used to come here, say they have weddings and they can't find dresses. So we got two dresses for rent and it worked out well. We're listening to its owner, a gentleman named Ataf, speaking through a translator. We have two weddings a day and there are people who come from outside the camp to rent dresses because it's cheaper here. Wait a minute! Non-refugees come to a refugee camp to purchase something because it's better than what they can get anywhere else? If that is not the definition of crazy, I do not know what is. Things are so crazy at the Zattery refugee camp. Over 3,000 businesses generating $13 million of economic activity a month that they even have their own Champs-Élysées. It's what the refugees jokingly and quite seriously call their main thoroughfare, a lively one reminiscent of the famous French shopping street, the Champs-Élysées. And even though the French one is just a tad bit more posh, at their core, they're the same. Entrepreneurs busting their butts to solve problems for other people. I went to the camp and noticed that everybody needed water a lot. And so I decided to open this store. Thank God the choice was right. These are the tanks where we keep the water before desalination. It cleans it from the sand, dust, and anything else. All of the debris is removed from this filter. And this entrepreneur's water is cleaner than the water provided by the United Nations. And he's a refugee. I was a prisoner. When I was done with the detention, I came here. At the beginning of the camp, the UN provided every meal to the refugees. But today, they provide a voucher that's loaded onto a debit card powered by the American company MasterCard that enables them to have more control over their lives. We are very happy with the vouchers. Before, all we had was bulgur, lentils, rice, and canned food. It was limited. Now, we can have yogurt, cheese, sardines, tuna, and other foods we didn't have before. The change respected their dignity as unique and free individuals at a time when they felt least free in their lives. And it enabled an even greater dignity. The vouchers empowered the refugees to spend the money anywhere, fueling the creation of businesses to provide for their needs and desires, which fueled employment opportunities at these businesses and fueled the irreplaceable dignity that comes from work that the refugees had been so desperate to have back. Some people say the camp was better in the old days when they used to distribute meals, but I think that now is better. We're listening to a barber, speaking through a translator, whose shop is on their version of the Champs-Élysées. 
we can open our own shops and the fact that this is possible is good for us. Now we're living like anyone else. The UN chief of the camp, Killian Kleinschmidt, has noted that today there's more perfume for sale. There's more lingerie. I feel underdressed when I go to the supermarket. People dress up to go shopping here. In fact, his UN has now concluded that helping refugees find jobs and start enterprises like the ones you've heard from is cheaper than humanitarian assistance. As long as these businesses continue to provide value to customers, they continue to generate profits that provide for the livelihood of their employees. A self-sustaining and never-ending engine of vitality, unlike humanitarian assistance that requires constant feeding from all of us and from the governments who we fund. In addition to the vibrant business life, there's another inescapable sign that the refugees have hope in the future. Babies. A lot of babies. Any moment in Sa'atu camp, uh, about 2,000 women are pregnant. And the refugees' birth rate is higher than that of Jordan. And not a single mother has died in pregnancy, despite the rather atypical birthing environments. Reporting for Our American Stories, I'm Alex Cortez. Beautiful job, Alex. What a story. And again, human freedom. What happens when we unleash it anywhere in this country, in this world? And we love bringing you stories like these. The Champs-Élysées in a refugee camp. I just can't get over that. It's fantastic. This is Our American Stories, and you can hear all of these stories, all that we do, on OurAmericanNetwork.org. That's OurAmericanNetwork.org. Post your stories, if you find any, about such things, about human freedom, about liberty, about your experience of friends or something you read at OurAmericanNetwork.org. Again, this is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories. Our American Stories, and this next story is centered around a question. How did the Che Guevara t-shirt become an American phenomenon? Che was killed on October 9 in 1967 in Bolivia while leading a guerrilla movement that had failed to enlist a single peasant. The present-day cult of Che in America, the t-shirts, the paraphernalia, the posters, has succeeded in obscuring his dreadful reality. We kick off our story on Che with a performance from the television talent show Star Academy. As a giant flag of Che waves in the background, the singers and background dancers wear the Che Communist Beret and sing an ode to their hero they call Until Forever Commander. The chorus sounds like something that would be sung to a North Korean dictator. Here lies the clear, the dear transparency of your beloved presence, Commander Che Guevara. 
Before there was Oprah, Madonna, or Bono, there was Che. Type Che Guevara into eBay and you get a staggering 33,000 results. From flags to iPhone cases, cigarette lighters, and perhaps most brilliantly of all, wallets. Of course, there is also the t-shirt. Thousands of them. Go to any protest, rock concert, or college campus, and you're bound to see the image of the socialist heartthrob in a beret, silk-screened on the front of a t-shirt. Che's image is one of popular culture's greatest ironies, that a photograph of someone who gave up his life for communism is now a quintessential capitalist brand. And irony upon irony, the man whose propaganda machine set the Che myth in motion is none other than the former Cuban president, Fidel Castro. How did Che Guevara, the communist terrorist revolutionary who murdered hungry children and became an icon around the world for his role in the 1959 communist takeover of Cuba, end up becoming the most commercial image in the world? Let's find out from Humberto Fontova. Humberto was seven years old when his family fled the Fidel and Che-led takeover of Cuba in 1961. He now lives in the United States and holds a master's degree in Latin American studies and has written books on both Fidel Castro and Che Guevara. I asked him to uncover how the Che legend, and especially the origins of the Che t-shirt, began. Well, the astounding thing about Che Guevara is how a complete and utter failure in everything he attempted in life could have become so famous. Castro himself said, propaganda is at the heart of our struggle. Che Guevara himself, in his diaries, said, much more important than guerrilla recruits were American media recruits to export our propaganda. There it is. But the Che Guevara phenomenon started after he was dead. That's when that picture was cropped and dusted off. As his former comrades would have told you, Fidel Castro only praised the dead. Fidel's historical revisionism of Che and his use of Che's image have been swallowed by useful idiots, the name Stalin gave to foolish Westerners who parroted his lies about communism's success. Che was the architect of Cuba's forced labor camps, which by 1965 were transformed into concentration camps for dissidents, homosexuals, Catholics, Jehovah's Witnesses, and Cubans of other religious sects. Anyone who refused to think, speak, and act in accordance with the Communist Party line was an affront to Che. This explains why the United States was his primary object of hate. In fact, he hoped to start a third world war. Here again is Humberto Fantova. Yeah, it was shortly after the missile crisis that uh, he thought he was talking off the record to the London Daily Worker. And he said, if the missiles had remained in Cuba, we would have fired them against the heart of the United States, including New York City. This was in November of 1962. And here's what happened November of that year again. 
J. Edgar Hoover's FBI uncovered a plot in Manhattan. Here were the targets. Bloomingdale's, Macy's, Gimbel's, and Grand Central Terminal. 500 kilos of TNT were to be set off in them. The date was going to be the day after Thanksgiving of 1962. The day of the Macy's Day Parade. Macy's by itself gets 50,000 shoppers on that one day, or did so back in 1962. Jagger Hoover's FBI had infiltrated the plot. They rounded up the plotters. And so here was Che Guevara planning to blow up Manhattan. If Che's terrorist plot on New York City would have not been stopped, it would have made 9-11 the second worst terrorist attack on the United States. Che's image has been sold on products by companies including Taco Bell, Gap, Urban Outfitters, Vans, and Louis Vuitton. But the most widespread of all is the humble t-shirt, worn by the likes of Prince Harry, Madonna, Carlos Santana, the band Rage Against the Machine, Johnny Depp, and Jay-Z who raps, I'm like Che Guevara with bling on. The TV show South Park and The Simpsons have both lampooned Che t-shirt wearers. Here's the South Park episode where 10-year-old Kyle starts wearing a Che t-shirt and attends a music festival after trying to sell magazines to a group of Che-loving hippies. Oh, wow. You guys shouldn't be doing that. Don't you know what you're doing to the world? Well, what do you mean? You're playing into the corporate game. See, the corporations are trying to turn you into little Eichmanns so that they can make money. Who are the corporations? The corporations run the entire world, and now they've fooled you into working for them. Are you serious? We never heard that. We just spent our first semester at college. Our professors opened our eyes. The government is using its corporate ties to make you sell magazines so they can get rich. Well, well what do we do? Just hang with us for a bit. We'll fill you in on everything you haven't been told. Wow, this band is so crunchy. Dude, I need more weed. So it seems like we have enough people now. When do we start taking down the corporations? Yeah, man, the corporations. Right now, they're raping the world for money. Yeah, so where are they? Let's go get them. Right now, we're proving we don't need corporations. We don't need money. This can become a commune where everyone just helps each other. Yeah, we'll have one guy who, like, who, like makes bread. And one guy who, like, looks out for other people's safety. You mean like a baker and a cop? No, no, can't you imagine a place where people live together and, like, provide services for each other in exchange for their services? Yeah, it's called a town. You kids just haven't been to college yet. But just you wait. This thing is about to get huge. Hollywood has advanced the Che myth with movies like Robert Redford's Motorcycle Diaries and Academy Award-winning director Steven Soderbergh's two-part biopic starring the incredibly gifted actor Benicio Del Toro as Che. Here's a clip. What is the most important quality for a revolutionary to possess? El amor. Love. Love. Love of humanity, of justice and truth. The irony is that Che jailed or exiled most of Cuba's best writers, poets, musicians, and filmmakers. He detested long hair, lazy youths, rebellion, freedom, and independence. 
he declared that individualism must disappear. And when we come back, more on Che Guevara. This is Our American Stories. is Our American Stories, and we return to the question, how did the Che Guevara t-shirt become such an American and worldwide phenomenon? Let's return to Greg Hengler and the story. Here again is Humberto Fantova. So you had forced labor camps, and those were the ones that the youth, the long-haired youth, went to. That's another one of the fantastic ironies of this is, is that the co-founder of the only regime in modern history to have actually outlawed rock music and actually persecuted, punished, and tortured rock music listeners is Che Guevara. Because here's what happened, think about it. Kids were trying to listen to the Beatles, or Beatles and Rolling Stones music and so forth was outlawed in Cuba. So you'd have places like public parks and so forth where young kids would get together and who were trying to grow their hair long and, you know, they'd have uh, trying to listen to the music under transistors uh, from the U.S. trying to get you at stations to listen to the Beatles and the Stones and so forth. Well, military trucks would just show up and surround the area and simply round everybody there. Imagine a... Uh, a Woodstock 3 or Lollapalooza surrounded by uh, National Guard trucks who round up everybody there with billy clubs and whips and send them to a forced labor camp. And then imagine the groups who played at Lollapalooza or Woodstock wearing t-shirts and hailing the people who ordered the roundup. <laughs> That's essentially what you have in the case of Cuba and Che Guevara. When Paquito de Riviera met Che, he recalls how hostile Che was towards his dream of becoming a musician. It was the moment he knew he had to leave Cuba. Here's de Riviera. Che was an inspiration for me because ever since I thought I had to get out of this island as soon as I can, because I am in the wrong place at the wrong time. D. Riviera did escape Cuba. He's won 12 Grammy Awards since his arrival to America, playing the music Che tried to silence. Here's jazz legend Dizzy Gillespie introducing Paquito D. Riviera. And now we'd like to introduce a young man who has become a grandmaster in this Native American art form. Only he is from the island of Cuba. Ladies and gentlemen, it's my great pleasure now to introduce Mr. Paquito de Rivera. Chase's symbol of rebellion actually enforced conformity at the point of a gun. Literally. 
Here's how Humberto Fantova feels about guitarist Carlos Santana, whose musical signatures is one of the world's best known. Ladies and gents, turn up your sound system to the sound of Carlos Santana. Carlos Santana thought he was the coolest, sharpest guy in the world while pridefully showing off the emblem of a regime that made it a criminal offense to listen to Carlos Santana music. See, you can make a movie out of Che, and I wish somebody would, but it would have to be something along the lines of a Marx Brothers movie or a Peter Sellers movie or a Monty Python movie. You can have a lot of fun because of the absolute idiocies that people who admire him pull off. D. Riviera also wrote an open letter to Santana after his Oscar performance in which the musician wore a Che shirt under a huge cross necklace. Here's D. Riviera. That is like entering a synagogue with a swastika on your, on your, on your chest. That doesn't make any sense. He hates artists. So how is it possible that artists still today support uh, the image of Che Guevara? Just the sight of a Nazi swastika fills us with dread, and for good reason. Adolf Hitler is one of the world's most notorious mass murderers. That's why the U.S. and British tabloids unloaded on Prince Harry when he wore a Nazi uniform to a costume party. But when the prince hit the town in a chase shirt, the press yawned. We're rightly horrified by fascist murderers. Why aren't we also horrified by communist killers? Calculating communist torture and death tolls can be a daunting challenge, but one taken on by Harvard University Press's Black Book of Communism. The book's authors, themselves former communists, estimate that Che established labor camps executed what would be equivalent of over three million executions in the United States. Here's Humberto Vantova. We're talking about a regime that jailed and tortured at a higher rate than Stalin and that murdered more political prisoners in its first three years in power than Hitler's regime murdered in its first six years in power. And that's an absolute number. Cuba is only a nation of 6.4 million people in 1960. 59 when Che Castro and we don't know though according to the Black Book of Communism 16,000 ended up getting murdered uh, during the course mostly during the early 60s the total body count for the Cuban Revolution and for this we have to include those who died trying to escape Cuba came to about a hundred thousand according to an outfit known as the Cuba Archive which has done a just a superb job trying to catalog all of the deaths associated with the Cuban Revolution. The firing squads, the forced labor camps, beatings to death in prisons, and people who have died trying to escape. And it's important to include those who died trying to escape because, folks, about two to three hundred Germans died overall trying to escape East Germany. The estimates of the number of Cubans that have died trying to escape the regime co-founded by Che Guevara and Fidel Castro runs from about 25,000 to 45,000 have died. And horribly, they were machine gunned while trying to escape. 
They were ripped apart by sharks. They died of starvation, of dehydration, horrible deaths trying to escape Cuba. And what makes this most significant is that prior to the Castro Chair Revolution, Cuba took in more immigrants in the early part of the 20th century than did the United States. And this was including the Ellis Island years, and most of these immigrants came from Europe. In other words, people used to be as desperate to enter Cuba pre-Castro and Shea as they became desperate to escape Cuba post-Castro and Shea. If you think the Hitler-Stalin-Che death comparison is hard to believe, try imagining this. Che would sign off his letters as Stalin II. In 2012, the multinational clothing corporation Urban Outfitters stopped carrying their Che-fronted merchandise after an open letter on behalf of the Human Rights Foundation called their attention to his bloody and anti-democratic legacy Namely, that he represents tyranny and repression for the millions of people who have suffered under communism. Target recently pulled their 24-CD carrying case decorated with the image of Che Guevara after intense customer backlash. One customer remarked, What's next? Pol Pot pajamas? Currently, Walmart stands alone with several pages of Che Guevara merchandise for sale on its website. One of the posters for sale features this propaganda quote by the sadistic torturer. Let me say, at the risk of seeming ridiculous, that the true revolutionary is guided by great feelings of love. Investors Business Daily lamented in an editorial that all this reflects an indifference to history. It is customary for followers of a cult not to know the real-life story of their hero, the historical truth. Young Argentines have come up with an expression for this cultural phenomenon that rhymes perfectly in Spanish. I have a Che t-shirt, and I don't know why. Che's cult status among disaffected youth and others unhappy with the state of the world has endured with Che's well-documented reputation for brutality overlooked. In the end, ignorance, of course, accounts for much of the Che myth. But myth can tell you as much about an era as truth. And so it is that thanks to Che's own testimonials, his thoughts, and his deeds, and thanks also to his premature departure, we know exactly how deluded so many of our contemporaries are about so much. The only question is, whether Che fans are too ignorant to realize they've been duped or too anti-American to care. I'm Greg Hengler, and this is Our American Stories. And there you have it. Great job as always, Greg. How did the Che Guevara t-shirt become an American phenomenon? A story wrapped around a question, Che Guevara's story, which affects so many people who have kids at college campuses and see that image. Well, now you have a story to tell those young people, a story to share. Che Guevara's story here on Our American Stories.
Hold your breath. Make a wish. Count to three. Come with me and you'll be in a world of pure imagination. Take a look and you'll see into your imagination. We'll begin with a spin traveling in the world of my creation. What we'll see will defy explanation. This is Our American Stories, and you're listening to the great Gene Wilder sing Pure Imagination from the 1971 movie Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory. And for the next hour, we're going to celebrate the life of this great actor who starred in so many of our favorite movies over the past 50 years, from the producers to Blazing Saddles and Young Frankenstein, and so many others. Gene Wilder, stage actor, screen comic actor, and by the way, nobody did comedy better, and it's the hardest Hardest aspect of acting. Any actor will tell you this. Getting people to laugh is no duck walk. He was a screenwriter, a film director, and my goodness, he can interpret a song too. You just heard it. And an author as well. He was born Jerome Silberman on June 11, 1933 in Milwaukee, Wisconsin, the son of Jan and William Silberman, a manufacturer and salesman of novelty items. His father was a Russian Jewish immigrant, as were his maternal grandparents. Wilder first became interested in acting at age eight when his mother was diagnosed with rheumatic fever, and the doctors told him to try and make her laugh. Here, Gene talks about that time in his life. When I was a, a little boy, I mean seven or eight, my mother had a heart attack, and the doctor said, don't ever get angry with your mom because you could kill her. Make her laugh. And that was the first time I remember consciously trying to make someone laugh. And I did. I made her laugh, and my criterion was if I could make her pee in her pants, then I knew I had done something funny. I'm, I'm, I'm saying it, I, I don't, I'm not saying it for a joke. It's very true, I, because she'd say, now look what you've made me do. But, uh, but little boys and, and grown men are confident of what they do in life because of of what their mothers told them that they were good at. And when I knew I could make my mother laugh, I felt I could make someone else laugh. And that's all I'm doing now, is carrying on the tradition. Indeed. At the age of 11, he saw his sister, who was studying acting, performing on stage, and he was enthralled by the experience. He asked her teacher if he could become his student, and the teacher said that if he was still interested at age 13, he would take Wilder on as a student. The day after Wilder turned 13, he called that teacher who accepted him. Wilder studied with him for two years. Here, Wilder talks about his earliest influences as an actor and how he discovered his approach to being a comedic actor. When I was growing up, um, I heard Danny Kaye on a record before I ever saw him, before Up in Arms, and I thought that's what I'd like to do. Then I saw Up in Arms. But then when I was in junior high school, I started to, uh, my idol then was Sid Caesar. Unbeknownst, well, I didn't realize that Mel Brooks was writing most of the material, so I got to know Mel before I even knew him. But uh, then I saw 
Lee J. Cobb in Death of a Salesman on Broadway. And I realized that he was doing something different from what I had thought I wanted to do. It didn't mean that I didn't want to yeah. be in comedy, but I wanted to approach it in a different way, through character, instead of just stepping on banana peels and mm. making funnies. Indeed, and that's when the best comedic acting occurs. When his mother felt that Gene's potential was not being fully realized in Wisconsin, she sent him to Black Fox, a military institute in Hollywood, where he was bullied primarily because he was the only Jewish boy in the school according to his own account. After an unsuccessful short stay at Black Fox, Wilder returned home and became increasingly involved with the local theater community. At age 15, he performed for the first time in front of a paying audience in a production of Shakespeare's Romeo and Juliet. Gene Wilder graduated from the Washington High School in Milwaukee in 1951. Here, Gene talks about how he went from the name Jerome Silberman to Gene Wilder. I had just gotten into the actor's studio, which was a big thrill for me and I didn't want to be introduced as Jerry Silberman I couldn't picture Jerry Silberman in Hamlet or Macbeth or something like that and I had to think of a name overnight and um, my sister and brother-in-law had a friend who's the fastest talker I've ever met he started with A and worked his way up through the alphabet when he got to W he said Wilder and I said that's the one I want and then for the first name it was because of uh, Thomas Wolfe's books, uh, the fr- Look Homeward Angel, and the hero's name was Eugene, but everyone called him Gene, who loved him, and The Web and the Rock, and You Can't Go Home Again, it was always Gene. So I put the two together, and then I was introduced by Lee Strasberg as Gene Wilder, because there, Ely Kazan and Shelley Winters and Rod Steiger and Paul Newman and uh, I didn't want them to say, Jerry, what's your name, Jerry or Gene or what? So that's how it started. And we're going to hear more about this great life story, but what good luck on his part to land in New York at the Actors Studio at that time. Lee Strasberg, who, if you remember, plays a remarkable part in The Godfather and is one of the great acting coaches in American history, teaching some of the great actors today that we all love and teaching him a certain methodology of acting called The Method. Some loved it, some didn't. But my goodness, the ones who lived by it gave us some of the finest craft ever. And in the end, it's what made Wilder so good. He, he decided to become the characters. And then we laughed, but he wasn't. And this, you see, even in Seinfeld, to this day, that style, which is the, they're not slipping on banana peels, they're in character. George is in character. We just find that character hilarious. This is Lee Habib. This is Our American Stories. You're going to hear about Gene Wilder's life in his own words, a remarkable American life, which we celebrate here on Our American Stories. Jerome Silberman becomes Gene Wilder, and we'll pick it up right there after these messages.
This is Our American Stories, the life of Gene Wilder. Following his 1955 graduation from Iowa, he was accepted at the Bristol Old Vic Theatre School in Bristol, England. After six months of studying fencing, Wilder became the first freshman to win the all-school fencing championship. No small feat. He was drafted into the U.S. Army in 1956, and at the end of recruit training, he was assigned to the Medical Corps and sent to Fort Sam Houston for training. In November of 57, his mother died from ovarian cancer. He was discharged from the Army a year later and returned to New York. A scholarship to the HB studio allowed him to become a full-time student. At first, living on unemployment insurance and some savings, he later supported himself with odd jobs such as a limo driver and fencing instructor. Wilder began his career on stage and made his screen debut in the TV series Armstrong Circle Theater in 1962. Although his first film role was portraying a hostage in the 1967 motion picture Bonnie and Clyde, Wilde's first major role was as Leopold Bloom in the 1968 masterpiece The Producers, for which he was nominated for an Academy Award for Best Supporting Actor. This was the first in a series of collaborations with writer-director Mel Brooks, including 1974's Blazing Saddles and Young Frankenstein, which Wilder co-wrote, garnering the pair an Academy Award nomination for Best Adapted Screenplay. Here's Gene Wilder talking with Larry King about the moment he met Mel Brooks and how Mel, Mel introduced him to a screenplay called Springtime for Hitler. I was in a play called Mother Courage by Bertolt Brecht, starring Anne Bancroft, whose boyfriend was Mel Brooks. And Mel came by to pick her up each evening after the show. And I was having trouble with one little section in the play. And he said, he gave me tips on how to act Brecht. He said, that's a song and a dance. He's proselytizing about communism. Just skip over that, sing and dance right over it and get onto the good stuff. And he was right. That's the irony. And I did. Then he said, would you like to come to Fire Island with Annie and me? Uh, I'll read you the first 30 pages of a movie I'm writing. And I went to Fire Island. We went fishing on the surf, came back, had dinner, and then Annie and I sat down and he read 30 pages of Springtime for Hitler. That's what it was called then. And then he said, would you like to play that part of Leo Bloom? I said, Absolutely. He said, all right, all right. So don't take anything in the fall without checking with me. September came, and I was offered One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest. Not the movie, the play with Kirk Douglas. So I called Mel and said, I feel a little silly, but you said, yeah, 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 yeah. Can you get a four-week out in your contract? I said, no one knows me. I can't. No, they said, can you get a two-week out? He said. I said, maybe a four-week, because I'm not a star. All right, we'll have to live with it, he said. Three years went by. I never heard from him. I didn't get a telegram. I didn't get a telephone call. And I'm doing Murray Shiskal's play called Love on Broadway. Matinee, taking off my makeup. Knock, knock on the door. I open the door. There's Mel with a tall stranger. I said, Mel. <laughs> he said, you don't think I forgot, do you? <laughs> Classic. Wilder goes on to describe how Mel Brooks introduced him to Sidney Glazier. And Zero Mostel. He said, this is Sidney Glazier, our producer. We're going to do Springtime for Hitler now. He said, but I can't just cast you. You've got to meet Zero first. Tomorrow, 10 o'clock, my heart was pounding. I got to the 
office door of Sidney Glazier's office. The door opens, there's Mel. He says, come on in. Z, he called zero Z. This is Jean, Jean, this is Z. And I put out my hand tentatively. And Zero grabbed my hand, pulled me to him, and kissed me on the lips. <laughs> and all my nervousness went away. And then we did the reading, and I got the part, and everything was fine. Yeah, try that sometime, folks. Here's Gene Wilder and Zero Mostel from an early scene in The Producers, where Leo Bloom, the accountant played by Wilder, throws an absolute fit when Max Bialystok, played by Zero Mostel, the producer, takes away his little blue blanket. May I speak to you for a minute? Go. You have 58 seconds. Well, in glancing at your books, I noticed that in the columns... Mark you have 48 the... seconds left. Hurry, hurry. <laughs> oh, uh, I glanced at your books, I noticed in the... 28 seconds. Money's You're running out of time. Mr. Bialystok, I cannot function under these conditions. You're making me extremely nervous. What is that, a handkerchief? Nothing, that's nothing. There's nothing. Know. Why can't I see? Oh, my blanket! My blue blanket! Give me my blue blanket! Oh, no, 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 it's not important. It's a minor compulsion. I can deal with it if I want to. It's just that I've had it ever since I was a baby, and I find it very comforting. <laughs> oh, and the physical performance by Gene Wilder is as good as the verbal, and Buster Keaton would be, well, looking down from heaven and just thinking, wow. In 1971, Wilder auditioned to play Willy Wonka on Mel Stewart's film adaptation of Charlie and the Chocolate Factory. Wilder was initially hesitant when he learned about the role, but finally accepted it under one condition. Here's Gene Wilder with that story. I'd read, read the book, and Mel Stewart, the director, came to my home in New York. And he said, you want to do it? I said, well, I'll tell you, I'd like to do it if I can come out and all the crowd quiets down, and I'm, I'm using a cane. Oh, my God, Willy Wonka is crippled. And I walk slowly, and you can hear a pin drop, and my cane gets stuck in a brick. And I do, I fall over on my face and do a forward somersault and jump up, and they all start to applaud. He said, what do you, Mel Stewart said, what do you want to do that for? I said, because no one will know from that point on whether I'm lying or telling the truth. He said, are you saying you won't do the film if, if you can't do that? I said, that's what I'm saying. Okay. Do it. And I meant it. He did mean it. And that's why Gene Wilder is Gene Wilder. Yeah, because that's not in the book. It is not in the book. When Woody Allen offered him a role in one segment of everything you always wanted to know about sex but were afraid to ask, Gene Wilder accepted. Everything, the movie, was a hit. It grossed $18 million in the United States against a $2 million budget. Here is the scene from that film where Wilder plays a doctor whose patient informs him about his love for a particular barnyard animal. Come in, Mr. Milos. Come in. Sit down right over here. I just want to get some history on you first. So, your name is... Stavros Milos. And your address? Armenia. Armenia. I am from Armenia. I am visiting my brother. 
Um, occupation. Shepherd. A shepherd? My whole family. Except for my brother over here, who is a rug salesman. Mm -hmm. Have you had any major illnesses? No. None. Good. So. Now, what seems to be the trouble? I'm in love with the sheep. I beg your pardon? <laughs> I am in love with the sheep. <laughs> oh, I see. See, doctor, up there in the mountains where I tend my flocks, it's so beautiful under the starry skies. And I am alone. And sometimes it gets so lonely. And the hours pass. And soon I desire a woman. But, doctor, there are no women. I'm not married and... Well, one night last summer, I saw her. Her? Daisy. Sheep. <laughs> <laughs> and how Gene Wilder plays this, how straight he plays it, is just one of the hardest things to do in comedy. And it's what made it so good. He just played the part. And, you know, sitting in front of me is a, a book called True and False by David Mamet, the great playwright and acting coach. And he continually says again and again, just do the words. Just let the words do the work. It's not about you. It's not about your performance. Let the words do the work. And let the character be revealed through the words. Actually, it sounds real simple. But you heard Gene Wilder in that conversation about a prior movie and his artistic decision. And you're hearing it again and again in each of these clips. You know, he plays the accountant and the producers, and he just plays it straight. And that's why he's so damn good. When we come back, young Frankenstein and beyond. This young actor becomes a mature and seasoned actor, and pretty soon, an internationally famous one. This is Lee Habib. This is Our American Story, celebrating the life of Gene Wilder. listening to some of the theme music from Young Frankenstein. We're talking about Gene Wilder, his life. We're celebrating it here on Our American Stories. And after everything you always wanted to know about sex, Woody Allen's movie, Wilder began working on a script he called Young Frankenstein. Here, Wilder talks about the creation of that script, the casting of the film, and trying to get Mel Brooks on board on the project. I went back east, and it was... Uh... March or April, and I had a, a little place in West Hampton Beach, Long Island. And after lunch, I took a, a yellow legal pad and a blue felt pen, and I wrote Young Frankenstein on top. And then for two, two pages, I thought, what could happen to me if I suddenly found out I was 
and heir to Beaufort von Frankenstein's whole estate in Transylvania. And I finished the two pages. I called Mel. I told him why. He says, cute. It's cute. That's all he said. And then later on that summer, Mike Medavoy, who was my agent at the time, you got anything for you and Peter Boyle and Marty Feldman? I said, well, what made you think of that company? He said, because I now handle you and Peter <laughs> and Marty. I said, well, with a wonderful artistic basis. Uh, as it happens, I think I do. Send it to me. I said, no, give me another day or two. And I wrote two more pages. The Transylvania Station, almost verbatim the way it is. And it put an ending on it. Trap 29. Yes, yes. And uh, Mike Medavoy called me and said, I think I can sell this. What do you think about Mel directing? I said, yeah, I'd love it, but you're whistling Dixie because he won't direct something he didn't conceive of. Now, you have to remember that Mel spent two years on the producers and made $25,000 a year. He spent the next two years on the 12 chairs, $25,000 a year. Neither one made a penny. Joe Levine made money, but yeah. Mel didn't. They were offering him 250000 or 25000 or whatever to direct this. And he said yes. He called me. He said, what are you getting me into? I said, nothing you don't want to get into. I don't know. I don't know. I don't know. Next day, they said, we signed Mel. Having just seen Marty Feldman, and by the way, that's the actor who played Igor, on television, Wilder was inspired to write a scene that takes place at Transylvania Station where Igor and Frederick meet for the first time. The scene was included in the film almost verbatim. Dr. Frankenstein. Frankenstein. You're putting me on. No, it's pronounced Frankenstein. Do you also say Froderick? No, Frederick. Well, why isn't it Froderick Frankenstein? It isn't. It's Frederick Frankenstein. I see. You must be Igor. No, it's pronounced Igor. But they told me it was Igor. Well, they were wrong then, weren't they? Of course. I'm sure we'll get along splendidly. Oh, sorry. I, uh, you know, I don't mean to embarrass you, but I'm a rather brilliant surgeon. Perhaps I could help you with that hump. What hump? <laughs> what hump? Young Frankenstein was a huge success, with Wilder and Brooks receiving Best Adapted Screenplay nominations at the 1975 Oscars, losing to Francis Coppola and Mario Puzo for their adapt adaptation of The Godfather Part Two. Shortly after Young Frankenstein, Wilder and Brooks set out on another film called Blazing Saddles. Here, Gene talks about how he was nearly cast for another role. I wanted to uh, play the Waco kid, the part that I did play. And Mel said, no, 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 I want you're too young. I want an over-the-hill alcoholic. I got Dan Daly who's going to play it. He wanted me to play Harvey Corman's part. I said, I'm all wrong for this. And um, six weeks went by. Dan Daly begged off because he had just finished some directing something. So they got Gig Young. Gig Young got into the costume, makeup, on the way to the jail cell, and foam started coming out of his mouth. He was on the wagon suddenly and withdrawing. And Mel thought he was acting, you know, some method actor. He said, good, keep doing what you're doing. And, uh, and then he passed out. 
And Mel said, it's a sign from God. <laughs> he called me from the, the phone on stage. He said, can you come tomorrow? I said, I'm supposed to go to London to do uh, The Little Prince with Stanley Donnan directing. Beg off. The next day I was on a plane, and the next day I was hanging upside down in the jail cell. And here's Gene Wilder introducing himself as the Waco Kid from this scene in Blazing Saddles. I don't know if you ever heard of me before, but I used to be called the Waco Kid. I was just walking down the street, and I heard a voice behind me say, Reach for it, mister. And I spun around, and there I was, face to face, with a six-year-old kid. Well, I just threw my guns down, walked away. Little bastard shot me in the ass. <laughs> so I limped to the nearest saloon, crawled inside a whiskey bottle, and I've been there ever since. In 1975, Wilder's agent sent him a script for a film called Super Chief. Wilder accepted, but told the film's producers that he thought the only person who could keep the film from being offensive was Richard Pryor. Pryor accepted the role in the film, which had been renamed Silver Streak, the first film to team Wilder and Pryor. They became Hollywood's most successful interracial movie comedy duo. Here, Wilder talks about that chemistry he had with Pryor and how they always found it easy to improvise with each other. I hope this comes out right, but it's a little bit like sex. You know, when you, <laughs> when you meet someone and the chemistry is there, you don't know why, you don't know how, but it's there. I met him the night before we did our first scene. We hugged, we did the first scene, and he said something and I said something, and it wasn't in the script after the camera started rolling. And it went very well, and I, he said, did you know you were going to say that? I said, no. Did you know you were going to say that? He said, no. I never improvised in a film before. In, in classes I did, but not in a film. But with him, I always improvised. Because if you don't, you're not going to be anywhere, not with Richard. In 1980, Wilder teamed up again with Richard Pryor in Stir Crazy, directed by Sidney Poitier. Pryor was struggling with a severe cocaine addiction at the time, and filming became difficult. But once the film premiered, it became an international success. Here's Gene Wilder talking about his approach to acting, the choices he makes, and his thoughts on show business. I studied for altogether maybe 18 years. I got accepted into the actor's studio. I would approach doing Leo Bloom in The Producers in the same way as I would do Death of a Salesman. But the choices would be different. I would make comic choices. But the acting process, create a human being who's real, not only to the audience, but real to me. And so I, I think if you want to say the, uh, you're a method comic actor, yes, without getting into what method is, but uh, a Stanislavski comic actor, yes, because I'm trying to do it the same way I would. I don't, I don't mean this to sound... Uh, I don't want it to come out funny, but I don't like show business. I love acting in films. I love it. I like the show, but I don't like the business. 
And when I go to a restaurant and they're talking 3.6, 9.8, and how many, what the budget, and, the, and everyone is a, a writer or a director or an actor or a producer, and it, it just makes me nervous. And that's Gene Wilder talking about his craft and the business. This is Lee Habib. This is Our American Stories and the quintessential American story of Gene Wilder. More after these messages. You're blue and you don't know where to go to. Why don't you go where fashion sits? Different types who wear a day coat, pants with stripes or cutaway coat, perfect fits. Dressed up. This is our American stories. And was there anything Gene Wilder couldn't do? We learned that he worked for and with Sidney Poitier, and they became fast friends, working together on a script called Traces, which became 1982's Hanky Panky, the film where Wilder met comedian Gilda Radner. And that was in August of 1981. It would change his life. When filming ended, Wilder found himself missing Radner, so he called her. The relationship grew, and the couple married in September of 1984 in the south of France. Anyone who knows the story of Gene Wilder knows about the deep connection he had with Gilda, whose life was tragically cut short by ovarian cancer, that same cancer that took Gene's mother. Here together, Gene and Gilda talk about their relationship shortly before her passing. To me, it's irresistible. A funny man is irresistible more than any looks, more than any... She was always a sucker for a big laugh. A sucker for a laugh. I'm the best audience. She is my teacher because she tells the truth more than I do. When I am faced with a really tough one where I, I get hurt, I withdraw into what Gilda calls a dot. Dot man. And she <laughs> will lambast me until I have the courage to get angry with her, respect her enough to get angry with her and let her have it, not in order to punish her, but to say what's truly on my heart, what hurt my feelings, because if you harbor it, it comes out in another way. But if you say it at the time, it's gone. Five minutes later, it's gone. Maybe the next day. <laughs> or possibly in three years. But it does go yeah. away. Twelve years ago, it wouldn't have worked. At this minute, right here, now specifically, yeah, we're happy. Um, yeah, we're happy. Yeah. Here, Gene Wilder talks about keeping romance alive in a relationship that's been going on for a few years. I feel very strongly from my own experience and from what I've seen in the world that when it hits that way, the classic way that we hear about, it's not sex that men are looking for. When they have a good woman, children, it's adventure. They want a reaffirmation that they're a man. So they, they think that they'll find it by conquests. And if, if husbands and wives or, or people who are living together can keep alive the romance in their relationship so that when the egg is running down the corner of your mouth in the morning and the breath isn't quite so good or there's a little toothpaste on the side of it or whatever you know after two three four years of that you start to think of well 
Where's the romance in my life? But couples can keep romance in their lives. Wilder explains how Gilda kept him grounded and got his attention, ultimately changing his life. Gilda was different in this respect. She said, uh, I'm here for a purpose, and that's to get you to wake up and smell the coffee, not be off in the clouds someplace, listening to Mozart or Jacques Brel, but to be here with me. And when you feel anger or you feel something on your mind, you say so right now, here and now. I'm not a perfect woman that you've been searching for all your life. I'm just little imperfect Gilda. And if that's what you want, a real love, I'm your best bet. And that changed my life. Wow. Here Wilder talks about Gilda's untimely passing and the misdiagnosis of her cancer early on. She kept seeing doctors and they said, no, everything's okay. What are you worried about, they would say. And she would say, I'm worried I have cancer. Well, it's nothing life-threatening, they said. And she used to complain that they don't believe me. They don't believe me. If she had been diagnosed nine, eight, seven, six months before, um, I'm not telling you that I know, but I would bet my bottom dollar that she'd be alive today. I thought she was going to pull it out. I never thought she would die. Never. And sometimes she would grab my hand and look at me, stare right into my soul and say, really? Really? And I'd say, if I could live as long as you're going to live, I'd settle right now. And I meant it. I thought that I would die before she did. I thought she would make it. After her death, Wilder spent several months researching cancer and contacting experts to figure out what went wrong, why his wife wasn't given a simple test that would have detected immediately whether she had ovarian cancer. In May of 91, he testified before Congress advocating for patients. Then he co-founded Gilda's Club, a nonprofit organization with local chapters all over the United States, which provides social support for cancer patients and their caregivers. He also gave Radner's name to the Ovarian Cancer Research Program at Cedars-Sinai Medical Center, in Los Angeles. In this clip from the 2003 compilation Voices for Gilda, a tribute to benefit the Gilda's Club organization, Gene Wilder shares a short, touching tribute to his deceased wife. The song Ohio is a number from the 1953 musical Wonderful Town. Gilda and I used to sing this little song by Leonard Bernstein from the musical Wonderful Town. We sang it for our closest friends at intimate little dinner parties when everyone was supposed to get up and do something. I was always nervous getting up and doing something, but Gilda and I sang this song, and it made us feel better. Once in a while, we even sang it alone at home when we were feeling a little lonely. Why, oh, why, oh, why, oh. Why did I ever leave Ohio? Why did I wander to find what lies yonder when life was so cheery at home? Oh, wandering while I wander, why did I stray? Why did I roam? Oh, why, oh, why, oh, did I leave Ohio? 
Wilder spent most of his time painting watercolors, writing, and participating in charitable efforts. In 98, he collaborated on the book Gilda's Disease with oncologist Stephen Piver, sharing personal experiences of Radner's struggles with ovarian cancer. Wilder himself was hospitalized with non-Hodgkin lymphoma in 99, but confirmed in March 2005 that the cancer was in complete remission following chemo and a stem cell transplant. Wilder died at the age of 83, on August 29, 2016, at home in Stamford, Connecticut, from complications of Alzheimer's disease. He had kept knowledge of his condition private, but had been diagnosed three years prior to his death. Jordan Walker Perlman, the nephew child of the legendary actor, wrote this statement to honor the special person in his life. And I quote, It is with indescribable sadness and blues but with spiritual gratitude for the life lived that I announced the passing of husband, parents, and universal artist Gene Wilder at his home in Stamford, Connecticut. It is almost unbearable for us to contemplate our life without him. The cause was complications from Alzheimer's disease with which he coexisted for the last three years. The choice to keep this private was his in talking with us and making a decision as a family. We understand for all the emotional and physical challenges this situation presented, we have been among the lucky ones. This illness pirate, unlike in so many cases, never stole his ability to recognize those that were closest to him, nor took command of his gentle, central, life-affirming core personality. It took enough but not that. The decision to wait until this time to disclose his condition wasn't vanity, but more so that the countless young children that would smile or call out to him, there's Willy Wonka, would not have to then be exposed to an adult referencing illness or trouble and causing delight to travel to worry, to disappointment, or to confusion. He simply couldn't bear the idea of one less smile in the world. He was 83 and passing holding our hands with the same tenderness and love he exhibited as long as I can remember. As our hands clutched and he performed one last breath, the music speaker, which was set to random, began to bear out one of his favorites, Ella Fitzgerald. There is a picture of he and Ella meeting at a London bistro some years ago that are among each of our most cherished possessions. She was singing... Somewhere over the rainbow as he was taken away. This is our American stories. The life of Gene Wilder. From your window to a place behind the sun. Just a step beyond the rain. Somewhere over the rainbow Way 
Jesus.